I know sort of in my bones that there are ways to not only communicate clearly with data, but that you've always got a point of view. There's always an intended result um, and it's never neutral. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Walden. We're here today with Eric Rodenbeck, founder and creative director of Stamen, data visualization and cartography studio in the Bay Area. Eric joins us to discuss his work with the Getty Research Institute and their acquisition of Ed Ruscha's Streets of Los Angeles archive. Eric, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here, as always. So I know that in the past several years, you've been working very closely with the leadership of the Getty as they've acquired uh, Ed Ruscha's uh, Streets of Los Angeles photography. Um, this is an extraordinary acquisition of you know, tens of thousands of photographs made by uh, this, um, this Los Angeles-based artist and provides a kind of documentary evidence since the 1960s. How did you and your colleagues at Stamen get involved in that project? It took a while. I gave a talk at IO Festival eight years ago or so about, it's called How to Keep Running a Data Visualization Design Studio. And it was a very personal talk for me. When I, when I go to IO, I feel like I'm speaking to my community. So I opened up about just the journey that I'd been on in keeping the studio running. And um, David Newberry, who was at Carnegie Mellon at the time, saw the talk, made a note of it. And I guess then he started following our, following our work. And eight years later, when they did the acquisition um, and they were tasked by their leadership with finding a way to present the archive in a way that would be really publicly accessible, he picked up the phone and called me. Um, so yeah, it, it takes 20, you know, it just took 20 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, for, for, for people, our listeners who don't know this material, obviously they're going to um, Oklahoma born LA based um, uh, artist, Ed Ruscha, some describe as a kind of deadpan pop artist um, begins in the 1960s uh, by rigging a, a camera with an automatic shutter on the back of his pickup truck and begins documenting the major boulevards of, of Los Angeles. And he, he publishes um, in the 1960s, uh, an artist book called Every Building on the Sunset Strip. And then he continues this practice uh, and to this day, as I understand it. So there are more photographs uh, or more exposed film, let's put it that way, um, than we can even apprehend. And this appeals, I think, to your interest in kind of large data sets and the idea of you know, the impossibility of, of visibility in a way. So, so what was it that the folks at Getty asked you to do um, to help uh, audiences understand the material? Well, the Getty is a very serious academic institution and they're very, very good at documenting and preserving and cataloging and holding the material that, that they acquire. What they don't really do is build fun interactive websites and they don't necessarily um, have a kind of mindset around getting people to engage with these things in a fun way. You know, they have a very serious scholarly orientation. And so what they asked us to do was to find a way to get people out in the regular world to view this work and engage with it and write newspaper articles about it in such a way that it would be separate from their actual archive and acquisition. Because the, the archive itself is, again, like I said, quite serious. I mean, hundreds of thousands of hours. Um, they had to develop hundreds of thousands of photographs, geotag them, um, run them through machine learning. I mean, they just they just went all out. Um, 
And so that was that was the bulk of their effort. And then they came to us when it was time to make a presentation out of it that the general public would find delightful. And how can our listeners uh, find that material now? Uh, it's online at 12sunsets.getty.edu. If you do a search for Getty Ed Ruscha, you'll find it. It's um, almost bone simple, except that it's dealing with an archive that is um, astounding in its complexity. He's got year after year, the entire length of Sunset Boulevard, 23 miles, um, and every every single house, every uh, street sign, every barbershop. Um, and again, because the Getty has gone through and run all the images through optical character recognition technologies, you can see, you know, every time the word sunset shows up, um, every time the, you can you can find the, you can see year over year which properties the this one particular realtor um, was selling because his phone number is on the sign that's hanging in the window. And so you can make maps of this. You can see trees growing over time. And I think one of the one of the really exciting things about the archive and the, and the project is that it shows, you know, LA has this reputation that they just tear it down every 20 years. Uh, you can look at Sunset Strip and you can see that there are built, you know, there are some billboards there that have been there for 50 years in the same place. And, and that's kind of fun too, because you can track the popular movies of the day by flipping through, you know, 1965, 1968, 1971. You can see ad campaigns rise and fall. So, you know, you used to be able to advertise cigarettes on billboards and you can see when that stops. Um, so there's all this stuff that's just, that's just waiting there to be found. And I think the, the thing that I love about it so much is that there's, it's, it's almost infinite in its storytelling potential. I'll give you another example. The, um, you can, so the, the interface lets you drive, essentially drive up and down Sunset Boulevard. There's a little truck in the middle of a map and you can drive up and down and, and the images are, are laid above you and below you. And, and, and every one of those images, like I say, has been run through optical character recognition technology. So when you come to a crossroads and there's a street light there, um, you typically, there's a photograph of the don't walk sign. And if you think about it, you would have to be, it, it can't just say walk, it has to say don't walk, because if it says walk, it means that the truck is driving through a red light. And so Ed Bruchet and his team inadvertently created a map of all of the stoplights along Sunset Boulevard. Tell us about the red pickup truck. Uh, this is a device that's really central to the interface. And it's also a, it's kind of, you know, a point of humor, but it also connects directly to Ruchet. So how did you come upon that as an interface? It was one of those things that almost didn't make it into the final piece. And it would have been such a shame. We fought really hard for it. You know, again, the Getty is a very serious institution. So it took some doing to get them to trust us enough that we weren't being goofy. It's one thing to be amusing and it's one and to be fun, but we didn't want anybody to feel as though we were making fun of Ed Ruscha. You know, we would never, we would never do that. But, you know, it's an interesting, it's an, because we, we, we got to meet him. And we had lots of conversations about the map and whether there should be a truck or whether the map was detailed enough. And he, he really cared a lot about all those details. But what was wild about it was he he sort of, you know, you, you find this when experts a lot that they can't imagine that other people don't have the same expertise and knowledge as they do. So, you know, when we showed Ed the work, he was said, oh yeah, that's the part of the street where it divides and there's a median in the middle. And, you know, he just, he knows LA so deep, you know, he's so intimately involved with it. Um, that I think it was hard for him to understand. And again, not to say anything, not to say anything negative, but just to say that that it's different communicating with people who don't, you know, like I don't, I don't know LA that well. I don't know Sunset Boulevard. I mean, I know Sunset Boulevard now very well because I looked at it every day for a year. Um, 
but this is really it's in, on one hand it's a love letter to Los Angeles, um, and then also it's a it's a love letter to to Ed's practice. He did this every three or two years for fifty years. It's just, I don't know of anything else in the world that's like that. One of the things I'm struck by, Eric, is that you know, in, you know, Stamen is, of course, I think, among the leading, you know, more interesting, you know, cartographic studios in North America. You've got you know two decades of extraordinary work in in mapping and data visualization. Part of what's so striking about the the Rouché project is that it's it's elevational, that it's not immediately a plan. You know, it's not immediately a, a kind of geographic problem. And in part, I think that speaks to Rouché's you know singularity, right? That it's it's this uh, elevation, you know, the position of the camera is interesting here, right? So as you've described it, you know, the, the camera is elevated really above a natural eye height. It's in the middle of the road, we could also say that, right? And it's automated, right? So it's producing this kind of machinic imagery of the storefronts and the kind of the real estate development and the landscape development of parts of Los Angeles, but curiously devoid of human beings, right? Um, it's, it's interesting to me um, that the elevational quality, you know, has really become such a kind of an established way of seeing the city. But from your experience working on the project, it strikes me that, you know, there must have been challenges associated with that as well. Yeah, well, the whole history of which car they used over time and what technology they used to automate the shutter and um, and, and all, of, all of the technical work that went into producing the archive, I think is one of the great untold stories as yet. Might be interesting to, to do a podcast on that. Um, but just in terms of the incidental architecture, or you know, the incidental infrastructure rather of, of of this project, you can you can go back to a particular window in downtown Los Angeles, like a big glass plate glass window in a skyscraper, and see the reflections in the window of the different trucks that Ed and his team used over the years. It's fabulous, like because you know in the early ones they're in a pickup truck and they've got it mounted and it's on a tripod. And I think in the early ones, they're manually pressing the button or something like that, you know, they, and then they, they developed a technology of hanging um, a, uh, a, a, a wheel off the back of the truck and had it and every rotation of the wheel would, would trip the shutter. So then it truly became automatic. Um, there's a lot of shots of, um, you can see, so they, they, they planned the shots to be um, early in the morning when there was just enough light and that the light was not shining directly into the camera lens. Like that was important. And there are these just beautiful drawings in the archive that Ed and his team made, you know, they're in the notebooks and we got to see them of um, the, the location that the sun was gonna be in the sky when they crossed different boulevards along sunset and they're all hand drawn and hand annotated. So it was very meticulously planned you know, right alongside that is the amount, amount dollar amounts that they, the crew um, uh, spent <laughs> on lunch. You know, I mean, it's just this wonderfully human document. So it, it starts to become, it gets tricky really quickly because, and I think very much by design that Ed is, he's very, you know, he's very laconic. He's, he'll do these puns that have double meanings. He likes things that have double meanings. So on the one hand, it's this like extraordinary vibrant picture of a LA from a certain point of view, right? Being in a car or being above a car. And it's complete in the sense that he goes all the way up and down the street, but then he never showed it to anybody. And then also didn't develop most of the film. So most of it was just, you know, sat in these, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a warehouse as, as undeveloped movie film roles. So it's, it's almost like, you know, you, you go straight to issues of representation that, you know, the archive doesn't really exist without its digital accompaniment, right? So that, that happens. And, and so there's a, there's a lot of that back and forth. 
the part about the city and there being no people in it is also very much by design. You know, they did it very early in the morning on purpose. They tried to go out when there were, I mean, it makes sense because you want the least number of cars because you're photographing the city and not the cars that are in it. But then also just these, these magical human moments of, you know, that's when they drove past a car that was driving faster than they were. I mean, it's, it's just, it's got this quality that's, you know, just having been stamped out by the hand of God, this kind of like perfect seamless representation. Um, and you go from, you know, uh, spherical view to spherical view, but these are very clearly photographs shot on film from a car by human beings at a specific time and a specific place. And I think that's maybe what gives it its, its remarkable quality that it's, it's, it was done essentially by hand. And toward what end? You know, I think a part of your, you're describing the kind of laconic quality of so much of Rocher's work. So he begins his practice in the 1960s, right, when he's photographing standard oil gas stations in Texas on his route from Oklahoma to Southern California. He begins to make paintings and silkscreen prints of these. Um, and then he establishes this practice of you know, photographing the street fronts of Sunset Boulevard and other major boulevards. Uh, initially, as you say, this was a handcraft activity. And then at some point, as I understand it, this becomes a kind of a studio activity, right? There's a kind of protocol, right? And it's something that one can delegate. And then this practice continues even to this day. I mean, he's now doing this work digitally. Do I have that right? Yeah. So, so we, like I said, we, we got to meet him, the Getty, and we, we, we showed him the work and got his blessing and feedback. The question was asked, so they, they shifted, the last time they did this was, I believe, in 2007. I could be wrong about that, but it's in, it's in the 2000s. And there's an abrupt shift to color. Um, because when the, in the early days, and this was before the studio was successful, they were, basically, they had ready access to leftover film reels from the film industry. And he wasn't going out and buying film. He's very... Um, was very parsimonious in that way, but they shifted to color. So that's a, that's a sort of noticeable line in the archive that it's, you know, it's got this really lovely black and white crisp nature to it. And then suddenly and very abruptly it shifts to color. And there was conversation about whether that, whether they should be, whether we should show them in color or whether we should, you know, strip the color out of them for the sake of continuity. But we decided ultimately that the project was not about a representation of Los Angeles. At least our project was not about a representation of Los Angeles. It was a representation of the archive. And we wanted to be really, you know, respectful of the archive and have the project be about the archive. It's, it's very clear that these are successive photographs. Like we didn't try and blend them the way that Ed had in his original piece. He hand cut them so that they look really good with exacto knives and, and, and glue and such. And we, we were very careful to be and deliberately archive focused, single image at a time, you know, flipping through them, th those kinds of things. One of the things that's so compelling, as you say, you know, there are, you know, the Getty has invited a number of art historians, architectural historians, people that are interested in this material as a record of Los Angeles. And it serves in that way for many, many projects ongoing. But but your work and the, and the work of your colleagues at Stamen was really focused on the archive as such. So tell us, like, how do we understand this? This is you know, tens of thousands of photographs, the vast majority of which are negatives that are never printed. So by definition, even, even the artist has never seen these images. Uh, we went to visit Ed in his shop in LA and there was a question of, the, the studio was asking the Getty and us, we're thinking about writing a, a, putting a digital photograph, a digital camera alongside the film cameras that we've been using. And we've got a whole process around that and working out. So we're thinking about having a, a digital image as well as um, the, the physical image. Is, is that okay? And the Getty said, well, first of all, like, 
you know, you should do what you want. You know, you're the artist. We're just here to support you. You can do that and we'll acquire it. It'll be twice as much work because we will have to acquire both the physical and the digital copy and, and treat them in the same way. But if we were interested in efficiency, we wouldn't be in this business. <laughs> I mean, it, it reminds me, Eric, that, you know, this aphorism that museums have a notoriously difficult time dealing with, you know, living artists. <laughs> the, the, the idea of a, a curator or a director of a museum being asked by the actual living artist, well, what do you think? I could imagine being disorienting. <laughs> um, so I, I'm interested also in um, the place of this project. Obviously, it's 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 out there. It's live now for audiences. It's been productive for my own research at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, and you know it's been it's been you know, really productive for us in thinking about machine learning and the image of the city. I think for our audiences, one of the most interesting points of view you know, about this work is the disproportionate impact that Rouchet's kind of image of the city of Los Angeles has had on architectural thought, right? So it's not just this, uh, you know, important 20th century artist who's continuing to practice today, but it's the impact or the reception of those images on architectural thought. So for, for example, Denise Scott Brown, Robert Venturi, they take their students from Yale 1966 to a, to a studio site visit in Las Vegas. And of course they stop in Los Angeles and they visit Rouchet and Rouchet's studio and they explicitly appropriate that motif of the synthetic kind of cut paste strips that you've described uh, from his uh, every building on the sunset strip. The idea of you know one elevation of the street being up vertical, the other one inverted at the bottom of the page. Like that format of that artist book becomes a template for a kind of drawing in learning from Las Vegas that, that Scott Brown and Venturi explicitly reference as a quote, Rouchet elevation. Uh, similarly, we could see the impact on Rainer Banham, the British architectural theorist and historian. So I'm struck by not only the record of Los Angeles as a material fact or as a lived experience, but also the way in which, you know, architectural imaginary has been shaped, the idea that you could see this new way of seeing the city and then appropriate that and apply it to other cities. It's, been, it's still with us in, in, in many ways. Yeah, and I think it's, it's I'll, I'll return to this, to this again, that, that the, the history of the technical configurations that they use to make this work, I think is very fertile, could be very fertile ground for, for, a, for a scholar. Um, he didn't, I think he's, if, if I'm not mistaken, he, the first version, and I don't, we'll have to go back and look, but my, my understanding is that he didn't start off driving. He started off walking down the street and taking photographs and wanted to stitch them together. And the driving came later. And I, I don't and there was a there was a vintage which is described in the material as a kind of failed attempt, which was shot from inside the car at one point. Right, right, right. So it's and 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 it's this it what what I what I love about it is that it presents itself as as totally neutral when in fact laden with assumptions, technical considerations. Um, it changes from year to year. So uh, you know, sometimes it's sometimes it's inside a truck, sometimes it's on the back of a pickup truck. Um, the uh, uh, the focal length shifts, all that kind of thing. But then this idea then that it's this sort of depiction of a city, I mean, it, it, on Sunset Boulevard, at least, it radically shifts right in the middle from a kind of, you know, hyper suburban, you know, it's just, there's <laughs> there's so many pictures of bushes and, uh, and hedges, uh, you know, for, for 12 miles. And then it abruptly shifts to this kind of hyper urban environment with, um, with skyscrapers and those kinds of things. And I guess, you know, in in a way, the, the 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 camera angle is ideally suited to shoot single family homes, like the, the single family home, just about like or you know like a, like a like a single a, a one story 
storefront fits pretty squarely inside that 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 lens. But of course, it can't get a uh, you know it can't get a skyscraper. It can't get you know there's a there's a whole. It's not even getting the, the slice of the city. I mean, it's it's getting a slice of the city that's cut off at maybe twenty feet twenty feet high, right? So and it's also typically you know the elevation of the lens, you know, just capturing the sidewalk you know, just exposing the horizon above a one-story building. Uh, because of the longitudinal nature, the, the miles and miles of Sunset Boulevard that it captures, there's also the, there are these abrupt, you know, juxtapositions between, you know, wealthy neighborhoods and less wealthy neighborhoods or this landowner and this institution. And you see these, you know, these kind of things that in the kind of three-dimensional world or your experience of Los Angeles would be uh, not as evident because of the abstraction of these elevations, they really come to the fore. And then over time, I mean that that's the other piece of it. We were looking at some of the some of the more easterly things happening over time and this kind of very specific kind of development that's happening in LA now where there's a kind of mixture of retail on the bottom and and uh, residential at the top. And you can see these things just kind of pop in overnight when there's there had been a staircase there and you can track the different gang graffiti on it. So it's you know it's like watching gentrification in real time. So I'm interested to pursue, um, you know, I think, you know, art historians have been debating the extent to which, you know, Rouchet's work should be thought of as deadpan or not, or whether it's, you know, kind of mute or simply straightforward. And um, I think you and I would agree that there's obviously a lot more going on underneath the kind of laconic exterior of it. And the openness and the diversity of interpretation is certainly interesting uh, there. Um, so we know that Rouchet was, you know, training, um, in a, an institution that became a part of Cal Arts. Ultimately, he was, he was trained as a, a graphic artist, commercial graphic artist, and was and was working in advertising. And many of the paste-up techniques, the kind of you know analog and kind of photographic film strip techniques, come directly you know out of that work. You know, this is this is research by um, Dr. Jennifer Quick at Harvard and, and her forthcoming book on Rouchet that's going to be out later this year. And so, in that regard, I'm interested in the relationship between the practice of an artist or the practice of a studio and the material um, conditions, let's say. And so, you know, in your own practice in, in Stamen, you've been, you've been uh, working in the Bay Area on questions of the city and data for, you know, you know almost, almost three decades and founded Stamen what, two decades ago now or, or so. Um, and you've been, in a way, you know, I think similarly dealing with, you know, on the one hand, the kind of material conditions of data, you know, in the context of operating uh, in the digital world. Um, how is it that you got into that line of work? How does it come to be that you found a visual, you know, kind of, uh, kind of graphics studio, a kind of cartographic or a data visualization studio um, 20 years ago in San Francisco? There was a bookstore on 13th Street and 6th Avenue in New York City that I used to go into um, and just they had the best magazines. And there was a there was an old, old magazine called October. And I started reading about issues of representation as they related to technology, especially in the work of early camera technologies and techniques. And there was a, there's a whole, I discovered um, because I had gotten kicked out of architecture school and, and was living in Manhattan with a lot of time on my hands, that there was a whole field of study around the technologies involved in aesthetic production. Um, and I just started devouring everything about that that I could find. Um, and, and just, I started, you know, I was young when this was happening, 18, 19, and I was just learning about this notion that 
that inscribed into the way things get produced and the way that technologies capture the world or that there's no, there's no neutrality in that. Um, and that got me interested in the materiality of everything from comic books to drafting to early cinema. And at the time there was no internet um, and there was no digital stuff. I mean, this is when William Gibson was writing, you know, Neuromancer, you know, the internet cyberspace was this kind of radical aesthetic idea. Um, and I just knew that I needed to be part of it. So Eric, you were, you were uh, studying architecture at the Cooper Union in New York in the, in the 90s. Um, and it's interesting to me that you, that you found this appetite for, you know, kind of theories of representation, um, you know, after that, right? As, you, as, you, as you're kind of leaving architecture, you discover this whole discursive, you know, kind of remit. Um, and so you were drawn to the Bay Area and you're initially, you know, working in the kind of early days of the, of the World Wide Web. Yeah, we were, I mean, in San Francisco, you, you couldn't swing a stick in the 90s without hitting a web design company. They were just everywhere. And it was, um, I got involved with a group called Quaka Sports that was doing, they were trying to do for sailing what football, what, te what television had done for football, which is to say that the, you know, before, before TV, there were no breaks on, 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 in, in football. Um, and the television kind of wrapped itself around football and, and made it what it, what it is. And they were, the, the, the vision was to, to do the same thing with the internet. And the idea was to essentially wrap the internet around these sporting events so that you could participate in things like round the world sailing races, really long uh, marathons, um, car racing events. And basically the idea was to, to, to use the data that was generated on those, in those events and turn it into entertainment. That was that was Al Ramadan's insight. He had this insight that he was on an America's Cup boat, I guess, once, and and um, those boats have boats that follow them, and those are the boats where all the data representations of what's happening with the various sails and the hulls and things are. And Al remembered being on one of the. He was a it was a failed uh, failed sail, uh, and the boat sank. And Al basically watched the boat like get right up to the edge of collapse and then collapse and then sink while looking at computer screens in a boat that wasn't even looking at the, at the, uh, at, at the sailboat. So he had this insight that, that by looking at the data, um, you could maybe get closer to these extreme athletic events that were typically unavailable for, for regular people. And so he started a company around that. And I was the first designer that they hired at that company. And so we basically spent nine months telling stories with the data that was pouring off of these nine sailboats on a around the world sailboat race um, and kind of giving access to the daily lives of these sailors in a way that had not been seen before because, you know, they didn't have GPS positions on their boats. They didn't have, there were, there was, nobody was sending email or sending, you know, images from the middle of the South Atlantic. And this was the first time that that had happened. So it was a very exciting crackly time to be doing that. And it was, you know, it's just sort of perfectly timed because it was, it was the first time that, you know, people had DSL lines in their homes and it was a worldwide event and sailing is for rich people. So, you know, all the, the people that had the best computers were able to view this work. And so we really found a way to tell what we thought and what I, in retrospect, still think is, was a new, a new kind of storytelling. It was fairly real time. It was data driven, serialized. It happened over long time periods. It happened over long distances. And really the idea was to try to give the person sitting at home in front of their computer an ex a visceral entertainment experience using data. So, so for me, the entertainment was always the point. I get 
in these dialogues with people about, you know, what is data visualization for? And I've, I've written a bit about it. Um, and there's this, there's a notion, I think, in a lot of the, in a lot of the kind of coursework around it, that there's a proper way to do data visualization, that there's a correct way to do it, that there's a way that it can be done that, you know, nobody will misinterpret it, you know, that there's, and I, and I, I've just, it's, it's never made sense to me only in the sense that I've only ever, well, not that I only ever, but that I started doing it for entertainment purposes. And so I know sort of in my bones that there are ways to not only communicate clearly with data, but that you're always, you've always got a point of view. There's always an intended result um, and it's never neutral. And while you, you know, you began with an interest in entertainment, I mean, it's clear from the work of the studio over two decades that um, quite a lot of the work is really about engagement and education. Now, I mean, I, I, obviously you've uh, been working across a range of different sectors with a range of different types of clients, you know, corporate, cultural, you know, for-profit, not-for-profit, but I'm struck by two, two threads in the work. So, but first of all, let me just acknowledge, you know, what you've just implied, which is the, the diversity of the work. You know, when I think of Stamen, I think of, as I mentioned, you know, leading cartographic studio in North America, but I don't have any house style in mind when I approach your work. You know, every every piece I see seems to be getting at a new way of visualizing. And that's not always so common in my experience with the data visualization uh, world, as you, as you imply. The variety has been the thing that I'm proudest of. It's a wonderful life in the sense that I wake up in the morning and, and there's suddenly there's an email in my inbox from somebody who's studying interrelated microbial DNA sampling and their visualization engines are creaking underneath them because they were put together by grad students. And so, you know, at, at, the, at the university and they need somebody to come in and help them visualize the metagenomic expressive potential of their biology samples. And, you know, my, I, I didn't even know that that field existed before they called. Eric, I'm struck by the number of projects uh, that Stamen have been involved with over many years that deal um, either explicitly or implicitly with questions of health and public health, most notably. Of course, you know our, our listeners will be aware there's a long history between the emergence of modern medicine, the emergence of public health, and mapping, right? Pump handles in London and all. I'm wondering if if you could say something about that work, how you got into thinking about public health issues and if they are increasingly you know, relevant in, in Stamen's work, or do you see an uptick or an interest in that um, compared to where you were 20 years ago? For sure, I do see an uptick. I'll tell two, two stories. The first is um, we pre, they both revolve around the, the, the beginning of the pandemic. So um, in March of 2020, we were getting ready to launch a public health atlas of California for uh, the University of California in San Francisco. And they had done a major survey that was statewide and got data sets on just about any piece of demographic information for California that you might think of. Number of Latino families, percentage of children between eight and 10, food deserts, you know, access to, to, to medical care, just, just about just everything. Um, and we had stitched it together with them into an interactive map that we were going to get ready to release and talk about talk about public health. And then COVID hit. And, and our, our, our initial thought was, wow, we're going to really have to introduce the idea of community-based health practices. And then suddenly uh, all the world was talking about was community health. And so we sort of, and, and we kind of inadvertently stumbled on the thing that everybody was going to be talking about for the next two years. So we had to make a shift from, you know, we're going to have to explain to everybody what, what this thing is to everybody's going to know what this thing is and they're going to want very specific things and where's the COVID info. 
So um, we try to stay nimble in that way, but in California, at least clearly track the relationship of, you know, obesity to COVID-19, you know, or environmental health factors to, to COVID-19, as well as a great many other things. But, you know, you can go in and find neighborhoods that are food deserts. The other one, I, uh, the concept that I got introduced to was the notion of, I mean, food, food deserts is, is fairly well understood in the sense that there's no grocery stores next to you. The, the, the other one that, that UCSF was talking about was food swamps, where there's plenty of places to get food, but it's all garbage. Um, you know, there's just no, there's not access to fresh food, right? So um, that work continues. We continue to work with them. They're refining the work all the time. I mean, UCSF is a, is a public health institution and they're in great demand these days as a source of information and truth about what's going on with, with public health. So they use our work in the communication of different health trends. We've done a lot of COVID related work with them. And you know, the public at this point expects visuals to go along with the public health announcements. I mean, that's just part of that's just part of what we're what the world that we're living in now. The other was uh, also around the pandemic when the lockdowns first happened in March 2020. The phone stopped ringing, and you know, we had this moment as a shop. You know, we were all sitting in our homes, just getting used to figuring out what we were going to do next. And you know, we were wondering, are we ever going to get another client? You know, is the world going to end? Is this going to be? You know, what are we? What are we going to do? And then I heard from my friend and former partner, Mike Magursky, who works at Facebook now, asking us if we wanted to make visualizations of Facebook data as it related to mobility. And from there, we were off and running. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is that when you check into place on Facebook, they, they track it, of course. And they're tracking in some ways because people check into different places on, you know, on Instagram or wherever they're checking into. Facebook basically knows how much people are moving around or not, which is kind of a wild idea for me that like, you know, you set up the social media infrastructure, people are checking in, they're, you know, clicking likes and all these things, but Facebook has a statistically valid model of human movement, period. And so they can do a lot of stuff with that. They do a lot of stuff with that. But one of the things that we decided they wanted to do with that was to release mobility of populations across the United States at first, and then eventually to a number of countries around the world. And so we helped them build um, visualizations and maps of how much or how little people were moving around. And it's extraordinary what you see, because you know there were places in the United States um, where people were moving around more than they were you know, uh, before the lockdown started. There was just a big middle finger to the government of just like, we're gonna go wherever we want and we're not gonna listen to, to these mandates. And you can see that playing out. I mean, it looks radically different in California than it does in Texas or Florida, for example. How much people are moving around, you can see weekends and things like that. When you look at Puerto Rico, um, the numbers of people going, you know, basically listening to their governor were absolute. Everybody marched in lockstep and did exactly what the governor told them to do. And the reason for that is because when the governor says, stay home, there's a hurricane and you don't listen to them, you probably don't wind up living in Puerto Rico that long. But not so much in Florida, I would imagine. Exactly. And so you get to this point, and, and I love this about, about this work you have to be able to read pretty deeply into the profile of what kind of place you're looking at without knowing where it is. I mean, even different counties in California, because um, it's on a county by county basis, you know, you can see that, that in San Francisco, everybody just totally went into lockdown. Um, but some of the more northern, more rural places, uh, the, the numbers didn't go down at all. And there's a number of reasons for that. It's that, you know, people tend to, you know, in, in cities, people tend to um, not 
go very far for their food. Whereas in more rural places where you have to drive for your food, you have you don't have a choice. You have to go. Um, there are no you know delivery apps or, or any of those kinds of things. So that but this again this this notion that qualitative information about a place falls off the truck once you have enough Facebook data to be able to see where people are moving around. And that's that's I love that. Like this this just that that you sort of accidentally discover qualitative understandings of place by looking at maps generated via digital infrastructure. It's been long established, um, you know, in the context of the American city that one we can, you know, predict fairly accurately your, you know, your your political preferences based on how close you live to your neighbors, right? That this, this has been pretty well established. And so the idea that you could glean this kind of inference from mobility data as well, this is extraordinary, extraordinary insight. Um, my question there is, you know, you've been engaged in this work for, for decades now and, and dealing with you know, a, a range of different types of work, as you say, the work comes to you. Um, but in this context of discussing you know, mobility and, and politics, is, is the cartographic work, is it inherently political, right? Is, is mapping people's behaviors or activities relative to geography, is there something for you that's inherently political about that or, or does it depend upon the project or is it a, is it a case by case question for you? I would be hard pressed to describe a map that is not political. And, and I don't mean political in the sense of Democrat and independent and Republican. I, I only mean that uh, a map, that, that the ability to make choices about what goes on and what doesn't go on the map is an expression of power inherently. And making any kind of representation is, and, and, and being able to distribute and, and those kinds of things is, is inherently I don't want to say biased because it implies that there's a way to do it that's not biased, but I think it's you know the, that's that's something that I uh, like to talk about and think about and, and and wrestle with is just this notion that any representation any any representation of data by its nature has a point of view, um, and that there's power inscribed in the choices that one makes and the cho- or the choices that one is made to make. You know, I was looking at it the other day. We were we were driving somewhere and we were using Google Maps, you know, the voice was talking to us, uh, telling us where to go and, you know, make a left here and blah, blah, blah. And we heard turn left at the McDonald's drive through. It wasn't, you know, turn left on to Petaluma Boulevard. It was like they were ads in the voice directions. You know, like McDonald's paid them to say, you know, it's, it's like infinite jest or something, you know, the year of the adult depends undergarment, you know, it's like there's the, these companies are, you know, they're, they're buying and selling the way in which we get around. And anybody that thinks that doesn't happen and that there's that it's neutral, that there's some way that this is this environment is neutral. I, I'm curious to know why you think that. Eric Rodenbeck, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Charles. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilmore, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. Harvard.edu.